John chapter 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon and Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going to go out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, well, well, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. And he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, well, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, It's the Lord! As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals and there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. My junior year of college, I took a course called homiletics. If you don't know what that is, you can Google it, I guess. The professor that I had was known, had a reputation for being tough, not incredibly graceful. I completed and turned in an assignment, and I sometimes I could be kind of a lazy, sloppy student, and got the grade back, and I received a D minus. I know, tough. So the professor calls me into her office, and she says, you know, I, I'm giving you a D, but I think you can do better. I'm going to give you another chance. 
Now, this professor was not known for another chance. Matter of fact, Rebecca, then my friend, now my wife, asked to read you the same assignment, and the professor said no, which was ironic. But this professor simply extended me another chance. In the Bible, there's an alternative way of saying another chance. It's the word grace. Grace doesn't just extend second chances, but grace extends third chances and fourth chances and and 20th chances. This weekend, I'm wrapping up uh, our message series called All is Grace. We've been uh, working our way through the Gospel of John this summer. The title All is Grace comes directly from the scripture, John chapter 1, which we opened this series with, John chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. The author, John the Disciple, uh, it takes a very different approach than the other three Gospels. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all begin with a story. John, in his Gospel, begins with theology. He begins with his, uh, his description of who Jesus is theologically. So in verse 16, John writes, Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That phrase, grace in place of grace, can quite literally mean grace on top of grace, on top of grace, on top of grace. It is extravagant and it never runs out. That phrase reminds me of Sunday dinner at my grandma's house, my Italian grandma. We called her Nana because Nana means grandma in Italian, or so I'm told, or at least it's some slang version of it. See, Sunday dinner at Nana's house was extravagant. It began with homemade pasta, homemade sauce, homemade meatballs, sausage boiling in that homemade sauce, and she would bring out bowls of pasta, and we would eat until our heart was content, but that wasn't the end of the dinner. Because once the pasta was cleared away, then she brought out roast beef and mashed potatoes and corn and salad. And it just never ended. And it never seemed to run out. It was extravagant. It was never ending. I wonder, do we understand grace like that? The word grace in the New Testament, it comes from the Greek word charis. It has layers of meaning. It means grace, but it also means goodwill, freely given. It means kindness. It means favor that is unearned. Charis is something that is freely received, but is incredibly costly on the part of the giver. My grandma, on those Sunday dinners, gave to each one of us a labor of love. Not only did she cook and set the food, but she also cleared the table, washed the dishes, and put them away. And all we had to do was come and eat, and then go sit on the couch, loosen our belt, and watch the Bills beat somebody. That was Sunday at Grandma's house. I fear that we make grace a little too fluffy. Eh, It's not a big deal. God is graceful. eh? Maybe we cheapen it a bit. Of course, God will forgive me. He's graceful. But grace is incredibly, incredibly costly, not to the receiver, but to the giver. And so this word charis, this word grace, is the word 
that John chooses to use to describe the actions, the character, and the essence of who Jesus is. It is his fullness. Last week we were in John chapter 20. John chapter 20 seems as though it should be the natural ending to this gospel. This is how John ends chapter 20. Verse 30, he writes, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now that seems like a great place. If I were an author, I'd end it there. It's got a nice, tidy, clean ending. So chapter 21, at first, seems a bit like an add-on. But if you look at it more closely, what you discover, it's not so much an add-on as it is an epilogue. Because there were some things that were left unsaid that needed to be addressed, particularly concerning Peter and his role. Because up until this point, Peter is still kind of left as being the denier. The denier of Jesus. And so he needs to be restored to the role that he's been called to play because God's plan has not changed. But as the story opens in John chapter 21, Peter has gone back to life as normal. Peter is from a small village on the Sea of Galilee called Bethsaida. The word Bethsaida means house of fish. It simply described the village as a fishing village. Peter was a fisherman. In John chapter 21... Peter makes this statement. He says, I'm going to go out and fish. Which, though it's simple, is incredibly significant. Because when Peter says, I'm going out to fish, that doesn't mean he's like going to go to the DNR and, and get like a fishing license for the year and go out on the Sea of Galilee, maybe do some recreational catch and release fishing, charter a boat. No, that's not what we're talking about here. Before Peter met Jesus, he was a commercial fisherman. That's what he did. That was his trade. It's who he was. So when John writes a little further down in verse 3, so he went out and got into the boat, it is most likely the boat. The boat that he'd left three years prior to follow Jesus. If you turn back a few pages to the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has begun calling disciples, and so he calls Simon, which was Peter's name before Jesus changed it. And he said to him, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore and left everything to follow him. They left the boat, the nets, the employees, the family, the business. They left their identity and most likely their upper middle class income. Some excavations of a home that is believed to be Peter's would say that he was not poor by any stretch of the imagination. He was more middle to upper middle class. So he leaves it all to follow Jesus. But now, three years later, when Peter says, I'm going fishing, what he meant was, I'm going back to that. I'm going back to how things were. Maybe I can rebuild the family business, get back to my middle-class life. I messed the whole thing up with Jesus. I denied him three times. I'm a failure. I'm quitting ministry, and I'm going back to fishing. And I wonder, was that decision driven by shame and guilt. I mean, he, he denied his best friend three times. I mean, if, if someone who was my best friend denied they even knew me three times, that would be quite a wound. See, Peter was a coward when it actually mattered. Listen, talk is incredibly cheap. 
And Peter could talk a big game. Because back in John chapter 13, which we were a few weeks ago, Jesus is describing his death and resurrection, and he's going to go away. Peter wants to go with him. Jesus says, no, you can't come with me now. And Peter says, but why, Lord? Why can't I come now? I'm ready to die for you. And Jesus answered, to die for me? Let me tell you, Peter, let me tell you some truth. Let me throw some truth on you. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you're going to deny me not once, not twice, but three times. Peter didn't bravely die for Jesus. He cowardly denied him. And so maybe, as he got back into that boat, he's playing that over and over and over in his head. You ever felt guilt? You keep hitting the rewind button in your head? Like, guilt has a soundtrack. And the soundtrack of guilt goes a little like this. I should have. I wish I did. I'm a loser. I'm a failure. You know who's really good at guilt? Religious people. We're experts at guilt. We all have PhDs in guilt. And it can destroy a person. Matter of fact, guilt can swallow a person up if we let it. It does weird stuff to us. I, I remember the first time feeling guilty as a kid. I was like in third or fourth grade. And in third or fourth grade, uh, I was obsessed with an action figure called GoBots. If you don't know what they were, they were little toys that turned, cars that turned into robots. They're the cheap version of Transformers. And so I had a collection of these GoBots and and I wanted to grow my collection, and there were several I wanted, particularly the orange dump truck. I needed it. So one afternoon, as I'm sitting in my classroom at George M. Southern Elementary School in Lockport, New York, I noticed a few desks ahead of me that one of my classmates had some GoBots on his desk, one of which was the orange dump truck. So I got up ever so slyly out of my seat, as if I were going to go use the bathroom. I walked past his desk when he wasn't looking. I put it in the palm of my hand, stuck it in my pocket, and kept walking, and he never knew the difference, and thus began my life of crime. <laughs> Later that day, he accused another kid of stealing it. I was so guilt-ridden by what I had done that on the way home from school, on the bus, I pulled down the window and threw it out just to get rid of the evidence can't pin that on me. (laughs) Guilt can cause you to get to a place in which you do not see clearly. It would have been better for me to experience sorrow rather than guilt because sorrow has action attached to it. When I'm sorrowful, like I I have the potential to want to do something about it, to maybe confess, to to make amends, to restore, to do something to make things right. All guilt does is cause you to suffer silently because you're always trying to hide. And I don't think God wants that for you. Yes, God does allow us to experience sorrow. Yes, he allows us to feel the natural consequences of our actions. But that doesn't mean he's given up on you to live a life of secret shame and guilt. And so Peter, in the very last chapter of the Bible, appears to be carrying this ugly, ugly thing. Even after everything he's experienced with Jesus, he watched Jesus raise a guy from the dead. He watched Jesus heal. He watched Jesus take a loaf of bread 
and some fish that a kid had in his lunchbox and feed 5,000 grown men with it. After all that, he's gone back to his regular life. Now, John writes that Peter is out fishing at night, which is not just a, a description of the time of day. Through the Gospel of John, night becomes a theme that has a tone to it. John writes, for instance, that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. Judas betrays Jesus and goes out at night. Jesus is arrested and tried at night. Peter is fishing at night. I don't believe John is just describing a time of day. He's also describing a tone, a feeling. Guilt is filled with shadows and and darkness. So John says, I'm going to go out to catch some fish. Simon Peter told them and they said, well, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Which is ironic, because these guys are experienced fishermen. They've been fishing the Sea of Galilee since they were kids. They know every secret spot. They know everything about this lake. They know everything about about the water and the temperature. They know everything. They know their equipment. They know the boat. They know it all. And so these guys, they're out all night, and they don't even catch a minnow. Nothing. So then early in the morning, verse 4, Jesus is standing on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. And he calls out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? Which seems like a bit of a jab, because he's Jesus, he's risen, he knows. He knows the nets are empty. Hey guys, did you catch anything? It was more a statement than it was a question. It was almost as if Jesus was just kind of tightening the screws just, just a little bit to make him uncomfortable, because he knew. And then he makes it worse by saying, try the other side of your boat. Now, they don't know who Jesus is. They've been fishing. They're they're seasoned expert fishermen. They've been fishing all night. And this stranger on the shore, they're ragged, they're tired. Just try the other side of things. There's some fish over there. Seriously? But they did it. And they catch a huge number. 153, John says. Now, I wanted to make the numbers mean something. I tried to find, like, there's all these people that have all these ideas of what 153 means and all these calculations, and it means this and that. You know what I think it means? This is what I think 153 means. I think it means they caught a lot of fish. And that's the end of it. So they catch a lot of fish. They bring in this hall, and now Jesus is on the shore cooking breakfast. And John writes that Jesus made a fire of burning coals. There was only one other time in the entire Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, that that order of words is used in that exact way, a fire burning coals. It's when John describes Peter as warming his hands over a fire of burning coals. Coincidence? Maybe. Or is it possible that even smell evokes memory? Whenever I smell cow manure, I always think of family vacations. I do. I love that smell. I'm not not lying. I know it's weird. When I was a kid, we would drive everywhere in our vacations, and our Chevy Euro sports station wagon did not have air conditioning. And so as we drove through America's heartland with the windows rolled down, we smelled the manure. Rebecca's uncle would say, that's the smell of money. 
But I would smell that smell. So even now when I drive and I smell that smell, I think of those family vacations, which were always good, always fun, as we drove and spent time together as a family. So I wonder, maybe I'm reading into it, maybe I'm not, but as Peter got a whiff of those coals, did he go back to that night as he warmed his hands over that fire, the worst night of his life, the night of his betrayal? Even then, Jesus meets Peter in the midst of his discomfort. The smell of the charcoal fire, guilt and shame hanging heavy in the air. They eat, and as they're crouched over the burning coals, maybe it's cool in the morning, they're warming their hands like Peter did a few days prior. There's an awkward silence, and then Jesus looks at Peter. If he had glasses, he'd take off his glasses. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I mean, the more than these, I believe, was a reference to the boat, the nets, all of the, the tools of his trade. Do you love me more than this life that you're trying to rebuild? Lord, you know that I do. Then feed my lambs. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Then feed my sheep. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Then feed my sheep. Now notice, Jesus is using Peter's formal name. Simon, son of John. Before Jesus called Peter, his name was Simon. Son of John would have been a designation of his family. Jesus changes his name to Peter, meaning rock. And it's a, like a nickname, like an, a name of, of, of friendship, of intimacy. On this rock I will build my church, Jesus says. But Jesus goes back now. Simon, son of John. Do you love me? In that moment, Jesus is allowing Peter to feel the weight. Because while God's grace is extended extravagantly and freely, we do sometimes need to feel weight. Sometimes the weight of our decisions and actions, which is a good thing. Whenever I hear Michael John, I know I'm in trouble. And if I hear Michael John Belanti, I just start running. Simon, son of John. Uh Uh-oh, Jesus is using my full name. By the third time, Peter's hurt. And that's okay. While I do not think Jesus wanted Peter to feel guilt, I do think he wanted him to experience sorrow because that leads to transformation. With God, there's always another chance. So when Jesus asks a third time, something deep is happening in Peter. Peter is receiving a fresh revelation of who Jesus is, but also a fresh revelation of his calling. Because when Jesus said, feed my sheep, he was restoring Peter to his place of leadership. Your calling is to go and be a leader in the church. There's nothing wrong with fishing, but that's not your calling. Your calling is to go and take care of my people, your sheep. Listen, Peter, your, your failure is not the end of your story. 
Peter then goes on to play a significant role historically in the development of the Christian church. Peter, the denier, the one who cowardly betrayed his savior three times, goes on historically to die for his faith by crucifixion. And many say he was crucified upside down because he did not think he was worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. So what is it that causes that kind of change? Well, I would argue it's Karis. He fully experienced the transformational grace of God. Listen, your faults and failures do not define you. It is not the end of your story. Yes, sorrow is appropriate. It leads to transformation. But this story, the story of, of John, the story of Peter, the beginning of John and the end of John, they, they're the same. Extravagant grace that never runs out. So I want to leave you with an image to kind of bring this all to completion. It's starting to get cooler outside. I was at a high school football game on Friday and it was raining and a little chilly and I said, oh, fall has arrived, which means winter is right around the corner. So I want you to imagine with me, it's the middle of February. Oh, that sounds exciting, doesn't it? It's my birthday, February 10th, mark your calendars. It's the middle of February, and it's one of those Wisconsin colds. I mean, the kind of cold that while it's snowing, the ground is crusty because it's so cold. It's so cold they canceled school because, not because of the snow, but because it's like 40 below zero, and the kids get frostbite, and I, you know, it's, it's that kind of, it's that kind of cold where you just can't seem to warm up. You ever been that kind of cold where you just can't seem, no matter what you do, no matter what you put the thermostat at, you turn the fireplace on, you just can't seem to warm up. It's that kind of cold. You let the dog out, your spit freezes before it hits the ground. You just can't, you can't get warm. But then you remember, oh, wait a minute. There's a blanket in the dryer and the dryer's still running and I put it on high. And so you walk over to the dryer. It's still going, but you shut it off. And you open it up and you grab that blanket. Oh, and it's hot, like right out. And you, oh, it's so warm. And you take it and you wrap it around. You know, you've done this, right? You just kind of, oh, oh. I even use those downy dryer sheets. Oh, it smells so good. Oh. And you just go and you look out your window and you say, take that winter. Oh, it just feels so good to just, oh. And you find that chair and you just, oh. This is the image I get when I think of the grace of God. It's like a warm blanket right out of the dryer on the darkest, snowiest night of your soul. Oh, it's just so good. Even when I have to admit my failures and my mistakes and sometimes for the weight or even the consequences, I still know that I am wrapped in the extravagant, never exhausted love of grace of God, one that is renewed every single day. There's always another chance. And so I leave you with this image. 
when we go today, we're going to go together in the grace of God. I believe, Lord, there are some here today that are carrying some guilt. Maybe like Peter, maybe the the guilt is from something small, maybe something large, maybe it's from years ago. And the story just keeps being replayed over and over and over. Maybe there are some here that don't even feel worthy of you. And so I pray this weekend, whether it's someone here on our campus or someone viewing this online, that you would wrap them in the warm, fragrant embrace of your caress, your grace, your kindness, your unmerited favor. Something that we receive so freely, but something that costs you everything. We thank you, O oh God, for your extravagant.